0: All right, Dolma. Yes. Thank you officially for being here.
1: Officially, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> so most people know you because you've somehow managed to make business strategy videos go viral on TikTok, <laughs> but you also just launched a podcast. Mm-hmm. Then you have Make Lane, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the masterclass for women starting e-com businesses. Mm-hmm. Then there's also Startup Store.
1: <laughs> you guys did your
0: homework. The con- oh, I did my homework on this. <laughs> But I love the concept of startups work too. You basically give women the resources to throw a business shower much like they would a bridal shower or a baby shower. Mm-hmm. So you do a lot for women on the internet. <laughs> but it seems to me like you're sort of building a career around being the resource that you didn't have mm. as a woman starting a business. Is that how
1: you look at it? That's really interesting. I would say, in a way, yes, but a lot of it goes back to just this general feeling of, I'm an immigrant, I came here when I was six, my mom was 22 when she came here, and then I came along a few years later, so my mom had me when she was young, she was in a single immigrant mother raising an only child in Sacramento, California, and we had to fight for a basic kind of semblance of stability, especially her, and kind of just watching her go through all that, and then me being able to take, you know, my sort of inclination for academics and and get a full ride at Brown and then enter the world of Silicon Valley, I think all of that just made me feel like a bridge a little bit between these different worlds. And I remember just feeling, maybe it was just this general feeling of, I want to use whatever access I've been able to gain and kind of pass it along in a way and and open doors in whatever ways I can, and I tend to love content, I tend to love education, I tend to love nerding out about business, and for better or worse, we're in a capitalist society, and here, uh, achieving any kind of economic opportunity often happens through the vehicle of business, and so I, I have chosen this weird intersection as my kind of um, sweet spot in, in these different ways, yeah.
2: I think it goes without saying, you definitely make the internet a more empowering place for women, which is definitely what we're trying to do with this newsletter. But I guess when you hear that, like making internet an empowering place for women, what do you think of? What do you think we could use more of or less of? And what holes do you think we still need filling?
1: Yeah, I think fundamentally, I want to democratize access to a lot of the knowledge and expertise I've had access to or... I could have access to. So I think that is what I see as my particular strength because I'm good at nerding out about these things and analyzing these things and synthesizing all this random research into, you know, three-minute Kind of videos <laughs> um, with a green screen in the background. Um, I happen to be good at that. So, so that's what I do. But um, there are, I suppose, other ways I could do it by raising a fund or something along those lines. So I think for me, that empowerment looks like, quote unquote, democratizing access to that kind of knowledge, those kinds of experts. But I also lately find myself, and I don't know how you guys feel about this. Maybe this is a rabbit hole. We don't want to go down because it's so like charged and loaded. But I find myself wanting to like complicate this idea of empowerment and like what does empowerment even mean it it's kind of starting to feel very affiliated with the girl boss era to me where there's this sort of superficial notion of empowerment and what does it actually mean and that sloganeering can ring a little bit hollow and so that's something I've been grappling with and then also for women like what does that even mean these days and like is that even you know how how do I want to create a space on the internet where I am helping women, but also not not being more maybe being a little bit more expansive about who I include and not having those borders be quite so defined or have it just be just for women. so I've been thinking about a lot of these things and and uh, I don't know that there are right answers, but it feels fruitful to like interrogate them. How
0: do you think the internet and social media has? helped create that environment where that message about empowerment is really kind of flat and narrow and sort of packaged up mm-hmm. to sell to um, the mass group
1: of women out there. I think social media has a tendency to amplify the most simplistic, superficial, emotional, reactive narratives and sound bites and memes in any area. And I think it's no different for this. Um, and... I think unfortunately, the things that tend to go viral are kind of like simplistic and pat. And I don't know how much appetite there is generally for nuance and like critical thinking and like challenging our preconceived notions. So, but also, I think the internet and I think social media is just like an exaggerated form of us collectively, right? It's we, it is kind of a neutral mechanism and it just amplifies our maybe best and often worst tendencies, I think, collectively.
0: I've heard that phrase. If you're enraged,
1: you're engaged.
0: And, you know, this idea that the internet plays into our natural human negativity bias. Mm-hmm. So there's this argument as well that the internet's actually not neutral. It's, it's actually pushing us sort of into some of this mm-hmm. thinking, binary thinking. And it's interesting because that's the way it often feels when you go on there. Often, though, like when I sit down with people like you... I hear this want and this need for more than that and in human to human conversation I get that so much more. Do you think that there's a future in which it's going there because there is a there is a desire among some who want more?
1: I ask myself this a lot and this is actually part of why I wanted to create a podcast because there's only so much gray area you can explore on TikTok it's really designed for the opposite of that in fact so i i ask myself the same things i think pockets of discourse like what you guys are building in my mind will theoretically help because I think there is an increasing appetite, right? Things kind of swing in a pendulum. And I think when things get too extreme, a lot of people fall prey to that or sort of contribute to that. And and all of us are complicit in it in some way at different times. But at the same time, I do feel like when I talk one-on-one to my friends, exactly the same as you, I hear this yearning for sane discourse. I don't know when we're going to reach that critical mass where it's going to tip over into something meaningful because there are so many forces working against that like our lizard brains and and Mark Zuckerberg and who else? I don't know. I don't know who else. Yeah. Putin? I don't know. <laughs> like so many forces working against that. So I think there's going to be probably like this explosion or this multiplicity of forces, and they're kind of um, always going to be in conflict. But I hope that this sort of energy of we want something less inflamed is going to increase over time. At least that's, that's my hope. And if that doesn't happen, then I will just you know become completely nihilistic and never come out of my cave (laughs) I think there's a lot to
0: go into there but before we go any deeper into that TikTok yes (laughs) so you kind of already mentioned this its nature is sort of the opposite of that that being said what do you see as your purpose on TikTok as a
1: platform specifically yeah I see my purpose, my little tagline that actually one of my followers commented and I was like, I love that. I'm going to use that is TikTok B-School for women. And I like this B-School concept because it's just case studies of brands that are well known um, and using them as almost pedagogical devices, basically. And that kind of taps into my yearning to like democratize access to a lot of this content, Right. Recently, Kim Kardashian announced that she's launching a private equity fund. I think there are a lot of interesting angles there, but one good thing that has come out of that, somebody mentioned this in another podcast, I don't remember which one it was, but they were saying, now a lot of young people, a lot of people in general, are Googling what is private equity, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for us to be literate in capitalism. Um, so I see my page as being kind of devoted to that and making it fun and engaging and like not as intimidating because there's kind of an interesting split among my followers between industry people and just regularly people who want to learn more about these brands and want to understand how business works. And I think we're starting to see this emerging zeitgeist around that where maybe it's part of all these you know, documentaries that have come out about WeWork or Anna Delvey or Elizabeth Holmes. Or I think some of that is kind of um, you know, a byproduct of that appetite as well. But I think generally just people want to know what's happening and like they want to understand business so I see myself as that person who makes that a little bit easier and I I think TikTok it's such an interesting amplifier basically right and you have to learn how to harness it harness the algorithm and kind of like accommodate it feed the beast So I, I think of it as like constantly having to like feed this algorithmic beast with like potentially viral content and then using that to piggyback off of that and then like Giving people the content that I really think is substantive, um, not that there has to be such a stark divide between it, but um, but I often think about it that way, and 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 I think that TikTok just is almost an exaggerated version of the internet where things just blow up, and like sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're infuriating, sometimes they're you know like just intriguing, um, and I see my role as kind of trying to take this business education I want to provide, and then. These weird elements of the algorithm and trying to squash the two together.
0: I I think one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because I really don't like TikTok. I don't like being on there but I really like your TikTok. Thank you. So (laughs) I think seeing someone use it in that way and being able to go to your page and kind of Leave with a takeaway, not like I just checked out of my life for 30 minutes. I feel like it's entertaining, but it veers more educational. And it's it's exactly as you're describing. You're sort of manipulating it in a certain way to sort of meet your needs. Mm -hmm. But I guess my question would be for people like me who are skeptics... For people who don't think TikTok's for them or they just want to sort of shut it down forever and wish it never existed, like, could you offer some some light at the end of the tunnel for that perspective?
1: Totally. I have a lot of thoughts on this because a lot of my friends, they refuse to download TikTok. They're like, can you please cross-post more to Instagram so I can watch your videos? Or some will say, I only downloaded TikTok for your videos. I try not to engage with it. So I understand that sentiment. What I would say is there are a billion monthly active users on TikTok. That is a big chunk of the world, and a lot of them are very active on TikTok. And increasingly, TikTok is becoming the new Google, right? People are conducting a lot of searches on TikTok. It's becoming the new YouTube in a way. It's kind of um, crowding out Instagram. Um, You could even argue that it's crowding out Netflix because fundamentally it is an entertainment platform. It's not connected to the social graph so much as your interest graph, right? That's how the algorithm works. But all that to say, it is becoming the everything platform. That is how I think of it. That means that as the platform matures, as the demographic becomes more diverse in age group and interest range, You're just going to find everything on TikTok. It might have originated as something maybe more akin to like what Be Real is now. Who knows if it's going to be around in a year, but it's it's a little more youthful, right? It's demographically, it it skews younger and it's a little bit more sort of um, fun and lighthearted and playful. I think that's how a lot of these platforms originate. And then as they mature and more people catch on because the younger demographic always tends to drive the culture, then as more people catch on, as more people start to use the platform for different purposes, you start to find more substantive or interesting or thought-provoking content, whatever your interests are. And I think TikTok is uh, really good in an uncanny way at kind of like matching you with the stuff that it thinks you'll like. And so I do think that um, the default content that people associate with TikTok may be a little bit more superficial or not a value add, but I think that has started to change, and it's that is only going to accelerate. So that's what I would say. Some of the videos you're most known for are, on
0: TikTok are about Glossier, mm-hmm. and you are now going over to podcast format, like you said. And your first three part series is a case study on Glossier. Mm-hmm. In part one, you provide a lot of context, a lot of background, you give Emily Weiss a lot of credit, which is something she's not getting a lot of right now, (laughs) Um, and I feel like I'm going to be able to sort of follow that story in a more full, complex, linear way. Can you go into some of the frustrations you felt with TikTok? Did you feel a responsibility to tell a different type of story and mm-hmm. that's why you went over to podcast or what were the um, the feelings behind that jump? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, the primary reason was I was just getting a lot of requests to do a podcast because I think I have content that would be good in longer form. So that's one. Um, the other thing is I don't want to be dependent on TikTok, which is a Chinese owned platform that... The U.S. could decide it wants to ban at any point, And it's just an inherently kind of volatile platform. And finally, I, yeah, I, I, I like going deep into things. And TikTok is not a platform where you can do that. It is probably the least likely platform where you can do that. And so I constantly feel like I'm kind of doing acrobatics to try to make these business concepts engaging. And I'm you know, pulling up the Kardashians, and I'm trying to pull up the green screen and trying to make all this fun and interesting for people, and and I enjoy it. I enjoy finding that intersection, and I sort of reject this pat notion that pop culture is not worth looking at, or it's it's dumb or trivial. I think there are interesting things we can glean even on a metal level, and I also, I do think that no matter what you say about Glossier or the Kardashians, there's always going to be that other side, and I have this curse where I am like a contrarian and then i start to argue with myself in my brain and i'm like well what about this what about that and then i have the counter argument to my own counter argument and then like a few degrees after that and tiktok is not a good platform for that because it shows your one viral video to a bunch of people and then suddenly everybody thinks why are you hating on glossier why are you hating on kim kardashian or they think why are you such a fangirl (laughs) and and I want to transcend that a little bit and just have one full you know, series or case study where we get to unpack all aspects of that because I think the complexity of these topics is the point. Like going back to our earlier thread about can we have less enraged sort of extreme like discourse, I think being willing to just inhabit that complexity is a skill and it's uncomfortable, but I think we need to do it more. And I think we need to create more spaces where we can explore that and have exercises in doing that. So I think this is hopefully going to be a good space to do that, doing a podcast of my own, Um, especially because I think a lot of this sort of talk of female founders can like bifurcate so extremely, right? People are either completely in defense of them or they are Completely dismissive. And I think there's just a lot of complexity to it. That
0: really leads into something both of us called out about your first episode of Due Diligence, which is the name of your podcast. But you said, we need more examples of people being able to hold others accountable without being cruel or unkind. I just crave that. We both just thought you articulated that so well. And it's something we talk about a lot because, sure, there's all these topics we want to talk about on on this platform and I think half the message is in how you talk about these topics because if you're trying to be fair or trying to find the nuances trying to look at it from every angle and be compassionate that's a message too mm-hmm. but then also communication is hard especially on the internet so then even if you're trying to do that you might not do it so well at mm-hmm. some point and then we also need to have room for that failing mm-hmm. as well so being that that's something you really called out, does that ever overwhelm you? How do you approach trying to do that in a place where
1: it's just very difficult? I have been thinking about this like every single day. Um, I really don't know that I have the answers, but I I think you could kind of interrogate this endlessly too, because It's like, okay, let's be, let's hold people accountable, but still be compassionate. But then what if that discourse gets hijacked by people who are perpetuating harmful narratives or using it as an excuse for like, quote unquote, the kind of freedom of speech that is harmful to other people, right? So I, I don't know. I I always am asking myself, where's the line between letting people off the hook too easily and also being like compassionate and extending grace in a way that is such an antidote to the complete unwillingness to extend grace that we have in every pocket of society sometimes it feels like so I don't know what the answer is to that but to get a little woo for a second I do think like a mindfulness practice helps because it helps you kind of check your knee-jerk emotional reactivity and that's where a lot of I think the vitriol can come from that's where a lot of the sort of simplification can come from and I think there can be it's so tempting to fall into like intellectual dishonesty about the weaknesses of your own argument or like the validity of somebody else's position or somebody else's story when you are occupying that very emotionally reactive space. I like to think I'm getting better at that and it's it's hard, <laughs> it's really hard. But I think it's also a practice that is just generally transferable to even like our interpersonal lives. So I see it as something worth developing my muscles around and i think um if you can develop that groundedness and then also always be sort of asking yourself what am i missing here like i always try to ask myself what are they experiencing that i'm not understanding because that's what i would want people to like ask of me when dealing with me you know what i mean and we don't have that and it's so trite and cliché to say like oh treat people how you want to be treated but like why not why can't we start from there and see where it goes like, i really believe in that as cheesy as it sounds and i really want to like embody and I'm going to fail I'm going to be clumsy at it but I really want to embody that as much as I
2: can so so we'll see where that goes. Yeah it's about the attempt
1: mm-hmm.
2: I'm just going to ask a personal question because I definitely fall in line with more of the the black and white and I feel like watching your videos and working on this with Ford I've definitely like been able to see more of that gray area and I just want to know for myself have you always been this (laughs) have you always approached conversations so with such consideration or has it been such a process for you because I need to know just for me
1: are you fucked forever or just for now that's so funny because I think like my loved ones would hear you saying that and they would laugh because they'd be like she is (laughs) she is not she's not always like that um but no, I I think I've had to like consciously develop this because I I can um be so strong-headed about these things or sometimes I I do feel like it's easy to conflate um how much you care about something with how angry or worked up you get, right? And I I don't think they're necessarily the same thing and I and I think it's good to separate them and that's what I have learned is sometimes it can like if I really think about my rational objectives, which is it either involves persuasion or helping people see a different way or, or even trying to just create a common ground where we can like listen and understand and see all sides of a thing. It usually is not more effective to be angrier. (laughs) And I think like realizing that and coming back to my objectives and also seeing just how broken things get when everybody gives themselves free reign to like be um, so knee jerk worked up. I think that has helped me. But just to address your question at the core, I'm definitely not always like this and I I have to really work at it and I do think mindfulness has helped but I think I can be pretty um, headstrong about these things so it's a work in progress.
2: Okay, great. There's hope for me. There's hope for me yet. So it goes without saying that a lot of the topics you cover are super complex like we talked about earlier and often loaded for so many people. How often do you make a video, post it, Look at the comments and realize that your intention was totally or partly lost, and I know for myself, even with this newsletter i've I've just seen some people completely miss the message, and I'm curious to That's know if so you've experienced this.
1: Yeah, it happens regularly, but i I wouldn't be able to say exactly like what at what cadence. um Well, I think the glossier thing is a good example because I think. There are a lot of people who either misunderstand my critiques of her or think that I'm being too easy on her and they see her as an emblem of a very sort of commercialized white feminism, which is very valid. And they don't like that I'm sort of celebrating the success of the business. And so I think that there are a lot of times when that happens and it's just hard because part of what it takes to do well on TikTok is you have to take a really complex topic, pick one insight and kind of sensationalize it up a little bit and judge it up and then like lead with a really strong hook. Like that's what works. Right. So I think that can actually incentivize you to make something sound really simple when it's not. And, and I experience that all the time. And then sometimes I think like such a big part of human nature is we feel how we already feel. And we're looking for an excuse to like, just let that out on people (laughs) and like project onto them what we think they're saying, even when they're not. So, um, so I think it's just the nature of the internet. The other thing that's interesting
0: about what you do is that you're speaking to all things female founder. You're speaking to this girl boss thing and you're talking about the way things are being done, the way things have been done. And in doing so, in sort of disseminating this information, you're shaping the conversation for the next generation of women in these Positions. And I think that's so fascinating to watch because we've both, I mean, we talk about all the time how shaped we were by that original messaging, that sort of lean in, girl boss messaging. And we both came up in these female founder worlds and saw that messaging play out in real time.
2: You yeah. Feel that- I mean, definitely at one point I thought I wanted to be a CEO or founder of a huge business and... I definitely looked up to these female entrepreneurs. You know, I read their books. I follow their Instagrams. Cheryl Sandberg, Ariana Huffington, Sophia Amoroso, Emily Weiss, you name it. Um, And I also like had a boss who really romanticized her work. And it wasn't until my experience leaving that job and working with another female founder that I actually realized I didn't want that at all for myself. So I definitely experienced that disconnect between this glamorized image of what a founder is that you kind of see from the outside and what I actually experienced in these, you know, in these types of environments at times. And honestly, I think it's just like a lot of the reason why I'm so interested in this conversation and I listen to all your videos and your podcast and also at the same time why it's so hard for me to sometimes give these founders the benefit of the doubt because it's so emotional for me at times and Mm. you know you kind of like see yourselves in them and you want to even be like them even and and then you kind of get let down but um how do you think this like hyped up glamorization of these female founders came into play in the first place and yeah obviously there's been a lot of backlash recently but how do you think if you think like that portrayal is changing, yeah. if at all.
1: Well, first, I want to just acknowledge that people have such different experiences. And I talk to so many people by virtue of the TikTok content I create. I meet a lot of founders, a lot of former employees at some of these, you know, high highfalutin companies. And they'll tell me stuff that is pretty devastating. They'll tell me sort of like, oh, such a toxic work environment or this is what they're really like. And, and sometimes I even know the founders that they're talking about. And so it's, it's so disappointing and it's so sad how prevalent some of these stories are. And I think I personally think a lot of it is exacerbated by venture capital. Not always, but often. And so it's just really thorny and complex. And I want to acknowledge that a lot of people have had firsthand really terrible experiences in these environments that have been very toxic. And I think it's important to, like, it's so easy for me to sit on my little perch and, you know, talk into my little microphone and say, like, oh, we need to give people grace. But, like, people have had actually, like, terrible experiences with a lot of these founders. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that. And second, it's so interesting for me to interrogate why people have the positions they have. Like, where did it stem from? And for me, like, my motivation when I'm saying, like, let's look at this more in a more nuanced way, like, my ulterior motive here is I want, like, everybody has different amounts of access and different like cards that they're dealt, right? It's sort of just like what it is like to be in a capital society. But I really want people to not walk away from my videos with the message that, oh, well, Emily Weiss only got this because she is so privileged. I want them to feel like, oh, that's a strategy that I can still use that's applicable in my business. Like I want them to take something that's useful for them away from it. So I think sometimes I might overcompensate in the direction of, yes like all of that can be true but like let's focus on the tactical stuff and then it can get a little i worry that it veers into like Pollyannaish or like letting them off the hook and hopefully it's not that but but i think um all that to say people have different motivations and it's important to understand our own and it's important to acknowledge the experiences of others that have led to how they feel on a certain thing right um so anyway that's my little thing and then to respond to what you said which i don't remember anymore can you tell me what it was
2: <laughs> Is it like why, how this like hyped up glamorization oh, yeah. of these female founders came into play in the first place?
1: I think we just wanted to believe that it was true that women could quote unquote have it all, could be girl bosses, could be CEOs, could be wearing pantsuits and kicking ass and and that um, we were in this new era and we were all sort of headed on this linear path towards progress i think we just really wanted to believe all that and we want really wanted to place a lot of hope in some of these figures these personas as emblems or sort of like heroes or leaders of that charge um and i think that it was a lot of expectation placed on few people who are human after all and caught up in systems that are not designed to like help them be their best versions it's still a capital system after all it's still you know if you're in the world of Silicon Valley, you're still, if you raise venture capital, you're still incentivized to grow too quickly. And that can lead to all these internal issues. And so I think we had really high hopes. A lot of those founders were playing into those hopes by either explicitly or sometimes inadvertently kind of getting swept up in that messaging and that portrayal of where girl bosses were, you know, like emblems of that hope. And then when we see cracks in that facade, it's it's devastating. And it's so disappointing in a visceral way. And sometimes there are people who are um, engaging in a lot of hypocrisy that was more engineered. Like they were intentionally trying to benefit from the PR or the sort of like brand awareness boost or halo effect of affiliating with that kind of narrative. And then in other cases, I think they kind of just got pushed into it and they were like, all right, I'll just go along with it, you know.
0: I, I also think it's interesting that this Whole thing happened at the rise of social media, though, as mm-hmm. well. Like that, the girl boss vision, this sort of movement that everyone latched onto happened at the same time. We were suddenly displaying ourselves yeah. on the internet in this whole new way. Mm-hmm. And this idea of starting as human beings to pay attention to what things look like on the surface. Mm-hmm we're starting to see all of these stories about men and women, founders, people in power who are displaying very, very well values on Twitter or whatever, and behind the scenes are really not. And that's not just girl bosses, that's not just founders. That's just that's some, that's the internet that's something that's happening on the internet mm-hmm. where suddenly we have this capability. And I hope the fallout of that is teaching us a lesson, but it's not something you can just blame on one factor.
1: It's so many cultural things happening at once. So I think about that a lot and sort of like, how do you navigate that space? I ask myself that a lot. And there was one time I remember I um, back when I was really full-time working on MakeLane and I was networking with a lot of other female founders and it, we were we would sort of open up our networks to each other and I got connected to one founder um, and I was she was saying oh I'm raising capital for this this startup that I'm building and I offered her oh like I know these investors would be perfect I'll make intros for you and I'm bad at email you guys might have seen that and I was lagging on making those intros but I think she thought oh, you're going to accept my intros and not make your intros. And she was furious. And she found me on every social media platform, sent me a really long message on every one, sent me a really long email saying, you're such a fraud. You don't support women. How can you say that? And I was devastated and I was shook and I was so scared because I was like, whoa, I've really set myself up for that kind of accusation because now if somebody doesn't like what I do or somebody doesn't like how I comport myself with them or ask me for something and I can't give it to them, they're gonna say you don't support women. You're a liar, and so I think, I think it's just um, what it comes down to is we have such rightfully so we we really there there are certain people who are virtually uncancelable at this point, right? And other people who I think have to tread more carefully because you are setting up certain expectations, and it's good and it's right for us to hold people accountable to who they say they are, and it's also very tricky terrain if you do choose to go that route so I often think like am I shooting myself in the foot by saying that I support women am I gonna like as my profile grows is that gonna happen more and more where like somebody could message me and ask me for like you know free advice and maybe I can't give it to them maybe I can't give them like time or whatever and then it becomes a whole thing um and so that I find myself thinking about that a lot as both a woman on the internet, like uh, somebody who gives a lot of advice, right, is like trying to be as generous as possible with my time and my advice, but then I worry about the expectations that I'll set. So it's just such a weird new world of being a creator that like nobody gives you the blueprint for, right? It's just still really like developing and there's not really a clear sort of formula for any one person. There's not a clear playbook. So you just kind of navigate it as you go. And then you layer on this whole like, I'm here to empower women thing. (laughs) And like, for me, it's not a shtick, but like, I don't know how to make it not sound like a shtick. And I don't know how to not make it be this like double-edged sword. So I think about that a lot. Yeah, we were just
0: talking about this sort of, packaging up of feminism and selling it as your product, which has really become a thing. And I was reading some critique about this, and I totally understood the critique, and there was so much to be taken from it. But then on the other hand, there are some ideas that women have around feminism and and how they integrate that into their business and their work that is really great and authentic. And I want those businesses, and even if they profit off of that, it's it's really just, I think what we're seeing is this, are you walking the talk kind of thing. And a lot of people were really blatantly not in a really gross, exaggerated way. And I hope that, you know, in this conversation we're having about nuance on the internet, it's like, can we, for situations like you had with this person, are we growing a culture and an internet and a world in which people can allow for those kinds of instances? I'm not even going to call it a mistake. Like you lagged on your email. It's fine. <laughs> but, but to not jump to, Oh, I had one bad experience with this person and that's going to be the story I tell for the next six years every time <laughs> she gets brought up. Cause you know, I've worked with so many different people over my career and it's like, I could tell you one story that would give an impression of them, but that would be so unfair. I've changed so much over the last 10 years.
1: I I agree with that. And I often think it must be so difficult to be um, a super famous celebrity. Well, I mean, not to like play the world's smallest violin, but like when people meet you who are fans of you, they're either going to be waiting for you to be this like, horrible disappointment or like the best person in the world and you're gonna have such a brief interaction with them and you might be tired that day or in a great mood and based on that they're gonna turn around and tell their friends they are so nice and giving you way too much credit or they're horrible not giving you enough credit right and and not enough grace so I feel like that is just sort of like going back to that kind of human nature sort of knee-jerk you know reactive kind of mechanism but to to your earlier point about people walking the talk I think it's that's what needs to happen and also I think we're experiencing almost like a crisis of feminism where we're trying to define what it is right like the definition is so evolving like a decade ago lean in by Sheryl Sandberg did exemplify feminism and and now we're so far removed from that that it's like whoa that was like that's where we were and that wasn't that long ago and now we're I think sort of collectively like grasping for like a definition of it and everybody has different conclusions and they're kind of like at odds with each other oftentimes and I think that's what's so difficult. I also just feel like for a long time people
0: were using the word feminist but didn't actually involve a lot of finding of information mm-hmm. <laughs> um so and it feels like now people are starting to really understand the historical context of that word and now the the conversation is becoming more challenging because we have more information. We're having more people kind of entering into that conversation in a serious way where I think it was sort of surface level for a while.
2: Mm. I mean, going back to your TikTok videos and and what you talk about, you've spoken a lot, of course, about the fact that women are held to unfair standards when compared to men in business, which, of course, I wholly agree with that sentiment. Um, I just always have trouble with it at the same time because... I think it's good that women have aspired to be more than, you know, some of these male dominated leaders we've watched our whole lives. And I guess more than ever it feels necessary to me that we try to uphold this higher standard that we've seen before. But do you think that's naive, unrealistic? I would like to believe that
1: that we can hold people to a higher standard who have presumably experienced more oppression or marginalization because they will have had a deeper felt experience of that, right? And presumably they will have more of an incentive to, like, make a dent in the system, like, away from that reality. Um, But at the same time, I think where it's complicated for me is, okay, now, like, let's say, I don't know what percent of venture capital dollars go to black female founders, but... It's very small. It's like 0.2%. 0.2. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's it's 0.2%. And so if we place higher standards of accountability on that person, then not only do they have to fight against all the odds that they had to fight against to get to the position that they're in, but then on top of that, they have to exemplify this enlightened version of capitalism that is virtually untenable, especially within those constraints. And so I think we also, we, like, we can't just completely dismiss that notion. I think it's good to have Those aspirations and those hopes, but at the same time, I I think we should be wary of placing the onus on the individual to solve the issues that are systemic. And I think sometimes we have trouble sort of separating those.
0: Yeah. So obviously, you're tapped into this girl boss conversation, but I wonder how your personal experience has shaped that because you have experience shuttering a business and going in a different direction. And I think a lot of our cultural messaging in moments like that in our lives, a lot of people take that as, I'm a failure. This was a failure, I'm a failure. I'm gonna go crawl into a hole and not come out. Thank goodness you didn't do that. And every step is an important step on one's journey in figuring out what they offer to the world. And I'm thinking of this conversation around founders. I've heard you talk about this so much, and I wondered if your sort of slightly more empathetic take Mm -hmm. was due to
1: your personal experience in business. I've never drawn that connection before. It's possible, though, I think that I think it would probably be more true if I experienced some real semblance of success with my first business, which I did not. Um, So here's what I think it is. I think being in Silicon Valley, you see how things operate. You see how terribly ill-prepared a lot of founders are who are 22 or dropped out of college to start a company and are like young, like bros who have no experience managing anybody and they are given the keys to the kingdom, millions of dollars in venture capital, told to just kind of run wild with it. Like, I've seen so much of that, both directly and indirectly, and I've been so immersed in that world that I think that just has helped me see sort of how that ecosystem breeds a lot of that toxicity and, like, that mismanagement and that poor conduct and poor incentives. And I think that is for better or worse, where I tend to place my focus is just there's something about giving people way too much capital and telling them to do whatever they want with it. And also, by the way, you have to scale this idea, back of the napkin idea to a billion dollar exit in five to seven years, good luck, please go do it. Like if you do that, so many things are gonna break. So many things are gonna break. And often these are people whose entire identities and egos are wrapped up in their ability to like make good on that promise. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating, but not really, actually. That is what venture capital is. That is effectively what venture capital is. And so it, it just is the right vehicle for a very narrow outcome that purely has to do with a certain kind of technological innovation and financial exit that benefits the investors and their investors' investors and the founders and maybe whoever else on the team has some equity that's usually not a lot of people. It's not designed to help people create healthy organizations. It's not designed for businesses outside of like very narrow, specific, exponentially growing tech companies, right, but we try to make beauty brands fit into that mold like there there's so much there when it comes to the mechanism of venture capital that I wish people understood more because I think it'll it doesn't explain the whole thing but it explains more of what I think the media can portray because I also think like if you're a journalist you're not always in Silicon Valley understanding the way these things operate behind the scenes you have kind of a cursory glance at it and so I think that's also why I sort of see the systems and the incentives those systems create. And that's where I tend to place my focus. But I think there is a balance between, you know, individual agency and like accountability and responsibility and the systems. And so I think that's probably like my, my sort of like upbringing in Silicon Valley is probably more um, related to that more than anything. There's one, you just, you
0: spoke to one video that I, I've watched of yours where I can't remember, it was something like why venture capital is not meant for direct-to-consumer brands. is something like that. And there was a study that was like, these are the companies that have most benefited from venture capital. And they were no D2C. (laughs) Not not beauty. (laughs) And it was so fascinating for me to watch that because I feel like I've seen so many beauty brands specifically who like... Have gotten venture capital, and and that seemed to me to be like, oh, that's that's what they all do. That's the norm. And then I read that, I'm like, how how is this not information that's really widely consumable for yeah. people to sort of? I I, I wondered was... the
2: same thing when I watched that video, and I was like, I always thought that was the goal for every brand, no matter what brand yeah. it is, just like based on what we see,
0: right? Yeah, well, from it's... this
2: information, and
0: and just. I've seen people, like founders, where it's like their full-time job is fundraising. Yes. It seems like that's what totally. they're
1: focused so if you are a venture-backed founder, your job does become constantly fundraising or thinking about how to fundraise or preparing for your next fundraise or running your entire organization so that you're teed up for the next fundraise. So it does become a huge part of like what you have to do because you're responsible ultimately for not running out of cash, right? And like having to shut down the company and everybody loses their livelihoods. So that is a big part of it. And I've even, you know, it's interesting. There was a point when I was running McLean where I was thinking, because I was in that world and everybody was like, when are you going to raise capital? I'll introduce you to investors." So I was like, okay so I kind of like adjusted the vision trying to come up with a version of this education platform that could become venture scale which was very forced by the way It was like a very contrived thing and my heart wasn't in it which is ultimately why I backed out of it but for a while I was playing that game I was pitching investors and I remember before I even started pitching investors it was like my, like everything that occupied my mind space and like everything that kept me up at night went from how do I focus on my customers and create value for them to how do I create everything trying to win over investors? How do I just adjust this entire thing for the sake of investors? That becomes your new boss, not the customers. And they're the ones who should be your boss, right? At the end of the day, you're trying to create value for the customers. And so it was just stark, the shift that it created and also the extra stress because, when you have multiple customers like it's not like any one of them is a gatekeeper but when you're trying to target this very insular community of venture capital like together they form kind of the gatekeeper to your dreams and so you're trying to figure out how to contort yourself to fit what they are looking for and there are some venture capital firms traditionally are tech focused there are some like funds that focus more on consumer and like there are for example pure like beauty funds that approach it in a way where they're not just trying to have you grow like a tech company that exists. So maybe like some of the brands you might be thinking about might have raised from them or are planning to raise from them. So it's not just, oh, if a brand has raised capital, they're trying to like go down the tech route, but very often it's the case, way more often than it should be. And people don't realize most of those brands are not going to really succeed at that. And you're also like you could make a lot of steps that help, that make you lose the magic because brand building needs patience. It's, a pa- it's an exercise in patience. If you look at a lot of the great like beauty exits or like Byredo, right? They sold for a billion dollars. They've been around for like a decade or something. It takes a long time to build that kind of trust and loyalty and following and beautiful, great products. Venture capital forces you to collapse that into five to seven years. That's insane. You can't really do that because brand building requires a kind of magic that needs time. It's like a garden. You know, you just need to give it a little time and love and nourishment and need to evolve it in this very organic way. And so, a lot of brands don't understand that. They try to play that game, and then we see a few headlines about big exits and don't realize there's a whole graveyard of companies that have not been able to even come close to that. And it would be better if people aimed not for a billion dollar exit, but for like million exit is life-changing for most people, right? Like if all of the fund dynamics, and that's getting more into the financial piece, if the whole system were more intentionally redesigned to suit these companies and these potential outcomes without saying go big or go home, because most people are going to go home, um, then we would have a healthier ecosystem. And it would have ripple effects on even like, I personally believe the way the companies are run, that's, yeah. why, that's why so many of these, like, crazy stories of, you know, we crashed and, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, so much venture capital was poured into this, these companies to, like, amplify those that kind of egregious misconduct.
0: Yeah, I mean, just think about, I mean, especially in the last 10 years and you, you see in the media, it's like, ex female-founded company raised this much money. And I think we latched onto that because it's like, Oh fuck yeah! Mm -hmm. Like we wanted to see that. We wanted to see a big fat number next Mm -hmm. to a woman's name, and like, (laughs) it's it created a norm that was not necessarily there wasn't a context or understanding behind why that was good.
1: Yeah, and you're also giving away a giant chunk of your company. Like, congrats, (laughs) you own less of it now. (laughs) Last question. Yes.
0: When we're looking for people to talk to for how to be a woman on the internet, one of our criteria is people who go their own way on the internet. But to go your own way on the internet, you sort of have to stumble to find your way. You have to be a little bit cringe on the internet. You have to make mistakes on the internet and do things that maybe aren't authentic to you to find out what is and what works and publicly because the internet, it's public and it can stay there forever. So is there anything that you've, done or where you look back and you think, oh, that is so not me. Like, oh, you sort of cringe at or you think you just don't relate to anymore.
1: Yeah, most of it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so much of it. I actually think I've probably started and like abandoned, I don't know, like 20 blogs (laughs) since I was 14. I think I always had a yearning to like create content, but I just did not know how to like wedge myself in. So I'd start random things with random pseudonyms, very cringe. Um, I had like, I was like a Tumblr girly. Like I've created a lot of random content in a lot of random places before. I think always trying to figure out what would click for me and it would always be kind of focused on different topics depending on where I was at in my life. But but yeah, lots of cringe content out there on the internet for anybody who wants to find it. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, even if you scroll back to my early TikTok videos, it's just like cringe videos of me trying to follow trends um, for the first three weeks until I started talking about business. But um, but there's quite a bit of it. And I kept it intentionally up because I really want people to see like, you can like create random, weird, like slightly cringe things and it's okay. That's kind of how you find your footing. And yeah, I don't know. I don't want to like sanitize or scrub my feeds everywhere just to make it look like I had this like clear idea of what I wanted to do and bam, it worked. You know, I kind of want the awkward, clumsy teenagers of my influencer dumb to be there on the internet. Maybe I'll change my mind about that. But um, I think it's healthy to have some ability to withstand that kind of exposure and and know that it's not the end of the world.
2: You are stronger than me for not scrubbing (laughs) your stuff, but... (laughs) No, I think that's so important for people to hear because I think a lot of the times like people see someone, you know, maybe they're looking at you and they see you with like a huge following and you're so sure of yourself and they see like, oh, she just like decided this overnight and now she's this. And I think a lot of people like put pressure on themselves to to do that or I don't know. So I think it, it is good for many people to hear that. It takes a lot of trial and error and, and here's time.
1: One, yeah. It absolutely takes trial and error. It absolutely takes time. And the other thing, the other reframe that I think is helpful is when you come from a place of service, it's it's not, it's not cringe to be of service. You know what I mean? Like if you're trying to add value or like some thought prov- provoking ideas to somebody's day or a little education or create something beautiful that will like be calming or soothing for them or whatever you want to create it's not like if you're doing it focusing on them that can't really be cringe it's like cringe if you're like overly focusing on yourself very clearly trying to yeah. be an influencer and even that like it's it's a valid career path it's a hard job like there are so many things that go into it but I think people have that feeling of like oh that's so cringe when they feel like you're doing it for your own gain and not necessarily like to create something intentional on the internet for other people so when there is that reframe I think it you know lands a little differently
2: yeah Good stuff, Dolma. Yay. Dude, how do you do this? Do you like, bye, Dolma. <laughs> bye. All right, bye. Yeah. What did you do on your last your interview? Um, how did you close it out? Oh, you usually close it by like. <laughs> I like that she's telling us. <laughs> I think it's usually just. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> thanks for coming. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> well, I I was happy to be a spectator. This was really enjoyable.
0: <laughs> okay. Cut.